Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, Ezra, Introduction, Part 2. The first half of our introduction to Ezra began last week, and we took the time to look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah from the distant view, and we discussed how they are, there are aspects of the story of the return to Judah of many of the Jewish exiles that are startlingly parallel to the circumstances present within the modern church of the 21st century. The distant view gives us a big picture, but also often an overly simplistic or overly general one. So today we're going to begin to add a few nuances as we zoom in a little bit. Now to review, we saw that a number of Jews traveled from the Persian Empire back to Judah and it was a relatively small group. The first group to return was under Zerubbabel and it was no more than maybe 50,000 souls. And while that's not a small number, it's only a fraction of the perhaps 2 million or more Jews who were living in the Persian Empire at that time. Why do I think it was that many who elected to stay put? If we go back to a census that King David ordered in the 900s BC, it's recorded in the uh, second book of Samuel, uh, chapter 24, the Hebrew males capable of bearing arms that lived in Judah numbered 500,000. And if we conservatively assume that there were at least three times as many more women and children and elderly than that half million figure of only men, then we arrive at two million Jews who populated Judah more than 300 years before Nebuchadnezzar conquered the kingdom of Judah. There's no reason to believe that there would be fewer than that living in Ezra's day and every reason to believe that normal population growth occurred as neither Babylon nor Persia committed mass slaughter or genocide upon the Jews. Therefore, in the opening part, one, of our Ezra introduction, I said that conservatively only around 5% of the exiled Jews voluntarily returned to Judah. Very likely, 5% is much too large of a fraction. So, 95% or more of all living Jews freely chose to remain behind and to continue residing in the many Persian provinces that formed the media Persian Empire and they lived there as Persians or better as Persian Jews not as transplanted Judahites which they weren't it is this large Jewish population living in foreign lands that today are known as the diaspora or the dispersed Jews. Now, why didn't more return when they were given the liberty to do so? For most, Persia was home. They knew nothing of Judah except as their historical homeland. They had never visited the temple. 
that was little more than a pile of rubble since Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it in 586 BC. And further, these exiled Jews had created an alternative form of worship and atonement. They had organized new houses of congregating. They had appointed a new religious leadership. And this alternative form of their religion was the beginning of Judaism. A religion that had many attributes that were born from the Torah and the temple-based biblical religion that heeded the law of Moses. But it wasn't the same. Because neither the Torah nor the temple were any longer involved. Therefore, this new way consisted of many man-made substitutes. New practices that were unknown in the Hebrew Bible. But these did serve to give the exiled Jews a sense of continuing connection to their religious heritage and to their God. In other words, they were satisfied that their spiritual needs were being met and that Jehovah must be looking on in approval. Now with that as a backdrop, we ended last time asking the rhetorical question of whether the exiles should have developed all of these new religious practices despite their circumstances. And then when given the opportunity, shouldn't they all have returned to Judah? And we addressed this by drawing an appropriate parallel between the Jews' reaction to their situation and circumstances up in Babylon and then Persia with the development of Christianity from its inception to our present day. And we saw that essentially Christianity has drifted far from its original biblical faith roots that were originally 100% Israelite faith roots just as the Jews of Babylon and Persia drifted away from their original Torah and temple-based faith roots, and that in both cases this drifting mostly had to do with a response to circumstances and the adapting to the changing political environments. So, at the few times that a remnant of Christianity is decided that the adaptations and the concessions to human political realities had gone so far as to essentially gut our faith of its truest spiritual and historical essence. And some believers tried to remove several dubious man-made traditions and instead to return to a purer expression of biblical faith. They were met with strong opposition. Those who came to the New World on the Mayflower were just such believers who had been ostracized from the institutional Christianity of Europe because of their zealousness. Thus we also find Ezra and Nehemiah and the relatively few Jews who followed them back to Jerusalem to reinstitute the the Torah and the temple-based worship of Jehovah, they were met with strong opposition and derision. And the vast majority of Jews who were satisfied with their Judaism wanted no part of it. In our time, this zealousness to restore a purer expression of our faith has erupted within the so-called Messianic and Hebrew Roots movements. 
and along with a handful of other folks within various Christian denominations, we, like our forefathers, have set sail on a very uncertain journey to try and recover and restore our faith. And of course, we're considered by the majority of our Christian brothers and sisters as either traitors to our traditional Christianity, or heretics, or we're simply wrong-minded and divisive. And so just as I ended last week's service, I want to begin this week's by encouraging you that if Ezra and Nehemiah and the few thousand of their supporters had not been willing to swim upstream and to brave that opposing current, the stage could never have been set for the advent of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Or better, it would have fallen to another group, to another set of leaders who were willing to give up everything to follow the Lord. Both the rebuilding of the temple and the priesthood and the reinstatement of the laws of Moses were prophetic prerequisites for Christ's coming. And so it is the same today that many believers shall seek a restoration of a pure Bible-driven faith that involves embracing the reborn nation of Israel, the return of Ephraim and Judah to their promised land, and obedience. Obedience to God's commandments as prophetic prerequisites to Christ's return. Will we achieve these things completely and perfectly? No. Because neither we nor the circumstances are perfect enough to allow it. And so it was for Ezra and Nehemiah. But we must do our best and not look back. Now let's pivot. Let's take a look at the book of Ezra and by default to the book of Nehemiah from a few other aspects. Because we're going to begin with who wrote it and when it was written. The issue is complex. There's no easy answers. First, the book of Ezra in your Bible is not the only Ezra in existence. There is an apocalyptic book of Ezra that originated from an ancient Greek version of Ezra. And much like happened with the book of Esther, we find that the Greek version has some additions to it. And it might be due to an attempt to both fill in some missing pieces, at least as far as the editor was concerned, or to make it more appealing and appropriate to a culturally Greek audience. The Greek version adds to the Hebrew Ezra version some passages, interestingly, from Second Chronicles 35 and 36, as well as some extra unique passages that were inserted at what most Protestant Bibles would say is Ezra chapter 4. Now, in the Western church, this Greek version is called Esdras, which is really just Greek for Ezra, and is considered as one of the 15 books of the Apocrypha. While in the Eastern church, both the Hebrew Ezra and the Greek Ezra are in their Bibles. 
Both are seen as equally inspired scripture. Now this tells us something very important. We discover that once the Jews were exiled from Judah and they were living outside the Holy Land and they were assimilating into new cultures, the heretofore carefully protected gates to the formation of the Bible as written strictly by Hebrews were flung open to foreign cultures. And we see that influence, particularly in the books of Daniel, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Daniel, for instance, had large portions written in Aramaic. That was the language of the Babylonian Chaldeans. Of course, as well as Hebrew. Esther had sections written in Aramaic and Hebrew. But... Many Greek editions also found their way in. And Ezra and Nehemiah, we also find sections written in Aramaic, the Chaldean dialect, and Hebrew, and then sections of Greek added. So this makes matters quite difficult to kind of sort out which of the passages we can reasonably assert are original and which are later editions. Now the Ezra that we find in the Old Testaments of of Protestant Bibles is usually taken from the Hebrew Bible, but not always. The Ezra we find in our complete Jewish Bible is from the Hebrew Bible. There are no Greek editions, so in general that's what we're going to draw from for our study. But that's not the end of the complications. Originally it seems that Ezra and Nehemiah were considered a unity. Only later they were divided into two books. This does not harm the texts. But it does tell us that these were originally written in such a way that they were meant to be used together as one continuing saga. Not two perspectives or or traditions on the same incident. But then comes the matter of who wrote Ezra. And the traditional answer is that it was Ezra. Now there's a number of views on this and we're certainly not going to get bogged down in such a debate. However, there are four primary approaches that most scholars will choose from. First is the position that Ezra not only authored the book of Ezra, but also the book of Nehemiah and even First and Second Chronicles. This is the view that the Babylonian Talmud puts forth in a section called Baba Bathra. And it is this view that is accepted by many respected Christian scholars, including William F. Albright and C.C. Torrey. The second position is that Ezra wrote the book of Ezra, Nehemiah wrote the book of Nehemiah. However, we find in both of these books that they switch back and forth from the narrator speaking in the first person, I, me, we, to the third person, them, they, him, her. And so it makes for near certainty that while Ezra and Nehemiah may have been the primary authors, some number of other unnamed editors were also involved. The third position is that the chronicler, that is, the anonymous writer of the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, was the editor of both Ezra and Nehemiah. 
This view is the most accepted one today by conservative as well as critical scholars alike. And what this essentially concludes is that this so-called chronicler was the final editor who used memoirs written by Ezra and by Nehemiah, those parts of the documents that say I, me, and then he added more information from other sources, for instance some decrees written by certain kings and official involved in the Ezra and Nehemiah stories, and also added um, or clarified the genealogies that we see written in these books, as well as including a handful of other ideas that he thought were important to, com- to communicate regarding the story. In other words, like many books in the Bible, there was more than one hand at work. And often it involved an inspired editor who used various authoritative documents and records to put together an accurate account. Now for those today who might question whether we can then trust these Old Testament documents and accounts that were created this way, I only want to remind you that that is exactly the way the New Testament gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke were created. And there's no debate over that within Christianity. And John the Revelator wrote his Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, drawing from several Old Testament books, including but not limited to Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. In other words, most of the books of the Bible were created partially by eyewitnesses and partially by editors who pieced together various accounts, traditions, and items of information to, to, to create a coherent end product. Now as one who has written a few books, I can attest that this collaboration of author and editor is the norm today, just as it's always been. An author determines a storyline and writes the original manuscript and then an editor goes over it and and checks assertions versus facts and alerts the author if there's a conflict or an error, suggests maybe some changes to better the flow or to, to get the intended message across more completely, or is assigned to add the contents of other records and documents to bolster the author's claims and, and content. Now, I tend to adopt this third view, that Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Chronicler all had a hand in these books as we find them in our, in our Bibles, Western Protestant Bibles today. It fits the facts. Now a fourth view that's not worth entertaining makes Ezra and Nehemiah out to be so corrupted as to be worthless. Or that they're just outright fakes or forgeries. Uh, This reasoning comes essentially from the same text-critical liberal scholars who assert that the book of Daniel is also a fraud. So, now as to when these books were written. That has much to do with when the actual activities depicted in Ezra and Nehemiah occurred. And naturally, there's different views on that as well. So let's peel back the onion just a bit more and consider when the events of these two books likely took place.
And the first thing we have to decide is whether the texts are correct or not. Because they do give us dates. Now, they're not calendar dates like we'd prefer to see them. But they are dates given in the customary way it was done in that era in relation to the reigns of kings. Now, we're told that it was in the first year of the Persian king Cyrus who freed the Jews and encouraged them to return to Judah and to rebuild their temple. Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And it was either that same year or the more accepted 538 B.C. that we find this first group of Jews heading back to Jerusalem on a mission to rebuild the temple. They were led by a fellow named either Zerubbabel or Sheshbazar. There's even the distinct possibility these were two different people. In fact, modern scholars are nearly unanimous that Shesh Bazar was a mysterious fellow that no one knows much about who was then quickly succeeded by Zerubbabel. The Jewish historians, however, insist that as was common in Babylon, most Jews had two names, a Babylonian name and a Hebrew name. Therefore, Shesh Bazar was this first leader's Babylonian name that means Sin protects the father. Sin was the moon god. Zerubbabel then was his Hebrew name, meaning the seed of Babylon. We're going to deal more with that issue when we get to it in chapter, Ezra chapter 1. Well, when the Jewish exiles arrived back in Jerusalem, they immediately faced severe opposition by the Samaritans, or better, Samarians, the residents of that political district called Samaria that was on Judah's northern border. And in time, the Jewish returnees began to rebuild the temple, but they were stopped by mounting political pressures coming from several directions. The work sat idle for several years, but it was finally completed. Later, Ezra was commissioned by Artaxerxes, king of the Persian Empire, to take over temple operations. So Ezra arrived in Jerusalem with another delegation of Jewish returnees in 458 BC. So what we see is that there was 80 years between the very first group of Jews to go back to Judah and the Ezra group as they arrived back in Jerusalem. Eighty years. However, no doubt, there were individuals and families who went there on their own and some who also then returned discouraged to Persia during that 80-year time period. Now I said at the outset of today's lesson that we'd start to add some nuances. And the first thing we need to square away is that history is messy. The exact dates of most things that we read about in our history books or in the Bible, such as the conquering of the northern kingdom of Israel in 723 B.C. or the conquering of Judah in 586 B.C., those are just usually the culminating events of a long, drawn-out series of events. So as we return the, uh, study the return of the Jews to Judah, it was kind of choppy. It was on again, then 
off again, then on again, with various groups going, and some leaders then turning around and heading back to Persia, and then going back to Judah for a second time. So we find that the very first group of Jews who followed Sheshbazar or Zerubbabel back to Judah went almost immediately upon the end of their Babylonian captivity. And this group consisted of around 50,000 people, a goodly portion that lived through Nebuchadnezzar's attack of Judah and through the humiliation of being deported to Babylon. Yet, we have to understand that even though the date of 586 B.C. is given as the usual date for when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, that's not really true. His first march into Judah took place a few years prior to 600 B.C. And then through a series of attacks and threats, he deported several waves of Jews to Babylon over the next 15 or more years until 586 B.C. when he'd had enough of the rebellions and he just simply destroyed the city walls of Jerusalem and laid waste the Holy Temple. So the Jews who were living in Babylon when in 538 B.C. when the call came to return to Judah they were a mixed bunch of Jewish folks who had been in Babylon anywhere from 50 to 70 years and many more who had been born in Babylon. So indeed, of this first group, some were former residents of Judah, but who were now very old. And most, no doubt, had at least two and probably three generations of family born in Babylon. If they were ever going to go back, it had to be now. Or they were soon going to be too old to survive the rugged journey. Well, one other point of interest, in order to kind of give us a feel as to how all this fits into the biblical timeline, the first group went home to Judah well before the story of Esther took place. In fact, probably some 50 to 60 years before. So get the picture the context of the story of Esther was that the Jews were free and several thousand of the zealous had already long ago gone home because Judah still felt like home to them. In fact, by Esther's time, the temple was rebuilt and functioning. Yet by Esther's day, No former residents of Judah were still living. Mordecai, Esther's stepfather, was one of the majority of Jews who chose to stay in Persia. He had been born in either Babylon or Persia. He never knew Judah as his home. So we need to grasp that whatever form of their Hebrew religion they were practicing, it was not the Torah, it was not the temple-based religion, it was something else. So we have to be careful not to miscalculate and give to Esther or to Mordecai some kind of a deep religious conviction and spirituality. Mordecai was there because he preferred to be in Persia rather than in Judah 
Were they still faithful to the God of Israel? Oh yes, very much so. But it was in their own way. Then we also need to realize that when Ezra led his contingent of Jews to Judah in 458 BC, it was only a few years following the events depicted in the story of Esther. No doubt she and probably Mordecai were still living. Esther's husband, King Xerxes, had died very recently. And now his son, Artaxerxes, was king. And there's no reason to believe that Esther wasn't still royalty, even if she might not have been an influential queen. Did she ever return to Judah? Doesn't appear that she did. It's not hard to imagine she had no interest in going to a place she knew nothing of, Judah. A place that was still largely a shambles. Judah belonged to her great-grandparents. But as of now, it was just a minor Persian province, one of 127 provinces or districts, and it was not a prosperous one. Now as we study Ezra, we will learn that the temple was completed in 516 or 515 BC, some 57 or 58 years before Ezra's arrival to Judah. Ezra's goal would be to straighten out what he saw as improper temple services and to reinstitute the law of Moses as the law of the land and that it would apply to the commoners and to the priests. But the all-important defensive walls around the city of Jerusalem were still not rebuilt. And that is what Nehemiah would come to accomplish. The importance of the city walls being reconstructed cannot be overstated. Jerusalem was vulnerable to attack. People didn't feel safe without those walls. And until those walls were rebuilt, Jerusalem and so Judah would not grow and thrive again. However, not all would see it this way. Judah's neighbors, other districts of the Persian Empire, saw rebuilt walls as a threat. It might enable Jerusalem to once again become strong and then ultimately allow them to rebel. However, there are some date discrepancies. And a few noted scholars say that the temple wasn't completed until 350 B.C. Because Ezra didn't come until much later than tradition tells us and that the Bible tells us. Rather, they say, he did not come to Judah until 398 B.C. And this is because the Bible contains a severe scribal error. Our Bibles say it was under King Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son, that Ezra went to Judah. But this group of scholars says no. It was Artaxerxes II. And there were two more Persian kings who reigned in between Artaxerxes and Artaxerxes II. Under this view, Nehemiah actually came to Jerusalem before Ezra arrived. 
even though the plain reading of the text says otherwise. And almost all of this assumption has to do with the mention of a certain person's name in the book of Ezra in chapter 10. Yochanan son of Elishav. But in Nehemiah, Yochanan is called the grandson of Elishav. And an ancient document found in Elephantine, Egypt, a place with a large Jewish community, says that there was a high priest in Judah named Yochanan around 400 BC and that this must be the same Yochanan that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. So that drastically alters the timeline. Now, as you can imagine, I don't give this much credence as there are many Yochanans in Judah because it was such a common name. And high priests and kings and governors and others tended to pass along a favored family name to the next generation. So, we're going to go with the earlier, more traditional dates as written in the Bible text as opposed to taking some obscure names out of context and then using them to try to recreate a whole new timeline. Something that scholars seeking to make a splash sometimes try to do. So, our timeline is what you see here on this chart. It is that the first wave of Jewish returnees to Judah was in 538 BC. That's about 50 years after the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. The temple reconstruction was completed in 515 BC. Then Ezra went with his group, a much smaller group, than the first group in 458 BC. Then Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem in 445 BC as the governor of Judah. So from the first group of exiles to return to Judah to when Nehemiah would show up, almost a century passed. Very long time. Now it's always important when studying the Bible Old Testament or New, to understand not only the life and the political context within the Holy Land, but also outside of it. Because this context had everything to do with why certain decisions were made, why certain wars and battles were fought, why certain kings and governors were appointed, even why certain prophets prophesied as they did. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah Zechariah, were front and center. And they spoke directly to the reestablishment of the temple and reinstitution of the law of Moses in Judah. And we will, at the appropriate time, read much of what they wrote. Because from these, we get a far more spiritual viewpoint than the mostly historical and political viewpoints of Ezra and Nehemiah. That said, there is the theme of a reactivated covenant relationship between God and His people woven throughout especially the personal memoir portions of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now even though it was Haggai and Zechariah, who prophesied during the Ezra and Nehemiah eras, it was the prophet Jeremiah who was the greatest, he brought the greatest influence on the understanding of the importance of the covenants 
of Abraham and Moses as that point of binding together Yehovah with Israel. Jeremiah is thought to have died in the same year that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, 586 B.C. Something that Jeremiah had prophesied and it resulted in his imprisonment for a time. Nevertheless, the exile had begun more than 15 years earlier with the first waves of Jewish deportees to Babylon. So Jeremiah can rightly be included as one of the prophets of the Babylonian exile. Now Jeremiah's understanding of the covenant relationship, especially the Abrahamic covenant, centered on the nature of that covenant as a divine promise. Thus, despite their circumstances as captives in Babylon, this gave expectation to a release in time and thus an assurance that the Jews would survive and they would return to their homeland. Now, because the Jews had such difficult circumstances while in exile in Babylon that it led to their essentially establishing a new version of the Hebrew religion, one that would evolve into Judaism, it became obvious to folks like Ezra this problem has to be remedied. Ezra was among the few who recognized that the redeemed, that living the redeemed life according to the terms of the covenants that God made with Israel, that was the key ingredient to the prophecies of a glorious kingdom of God being established worldwide with Israel and the Israelites at the center of it. The diaspora Jews certainly maintained a stated allegiance to the God of Israel, but they were in no wise living up to the terms of that covenant, even though they obviously felt that their newly invented worship practices and observances ought to suffice. Ezra knew otherwise. So he passionately urged his fellow Jews, return, take up the true Torah and temple-based religion once again. Thus it would not be until many years after the temple was rebuilt that Ezra entered the picture. His goal, therefore, was to complete the temple only in the sense of completing or perfecting its services. He came with the authority to reform the priesthood such that it scrupulously followed the priestly code as contained in the laws of Moses. Now remember, as we discussed in the first half of our introduction to Ezra last week, those who returned to Judah consciously and subconsciously took their Judaism born in Babylon back with them. And it became woven into the behavior and observances of both the lay Jews and the priesthood. And the greatest proof of this is the fact that the synagogue system was eventually brought to Israel to work alongside the temple. And nothing of the sort was envisioned in the Torah. Now to complete our introduction, let's get a very quick lay of the land. 
Judah was a district or a province that was part of a larger political district called a satrapy. Now we're gonna, we'll speak of this more as we journey through Ezra, but I want to prepare you for it now so that it isn't confusing, and it really isn't. The Persian Empire consisted of 20 satraps or satrapies, each of which was then subdivided into provinces or districts. The king ruled over the empire, a governor ruled over each satrap, and then an administrator ruled over each district. The USA and most Western nations organized the same. In the USA, we have a president who is over all the states. Each state has a governor, and he has a certain level of autonomy. And then each state is divided into smaller governing districts, usually called counties. And there is some kind of a county administrator. Even further, there can be islands of smaller yet governing districts called cities or townships. And these have mayors. The Persian Empire operated essentially the same way. Judah was the equivalent of a county. So it had its own administrator. And it was located within the state that was ruled by a governor. Fairly recently, it's been discovered that the name of this state was Beyond the River. Yeah, in many places in the Bible, we will run across a mention of some place beyond the river. And this has always been thought to refer to a kind of a direction, a general area. Now we know that most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, beyond the river is actually the formal name of a governing district, a state which lay to the west and south of the Euphrates River. Beyond the river was a large state and it was divided into a number of counties. And some of these will be mentioned by name in Ezra and in Nehemiah. The most prominent mention will go to Judah and to Samaria. Now I need you to trust me that this short geography lesson and the more in-depth one that we'll get as we begin our study in earnest next week is vital to understanding not only what's going to happen within the book we're currently in, but henceforth all the way through the New Testament. Next week we'll open up Ezra chapter 1.